we ask that you would open our hearts to you through your word. We ask that you would unite the desires of our hearts in you through your word. We ask that you would satisfy our hearts in you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first reading, actually, I'm going to go to verse 7. Isaiah 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations, for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Mark. So we are in the second week of a, a series, a sermon series, that we are taking a look at, at that passage out of 1 Peter. Um, but we're not going to have a sermon on the First Peter passage every week. We're going to use metaphors that are in that passage to help us understand a bit more of what it means to be God's people who live in the reality of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so the, the metaphors that come out of that passage are, are many, more than we're actually going to cover uh, during this season. But Last week, Josiah, uh, not Josiah, I just saw you when you're preaching in a couple weeks. Ben Verkerick was here, uh, and ben, ben talked about the opening part of that in the language of living stones, and, and he brought that into here. And today, we're going to focus on this metaphor that's in verse 9, a chosen people, a chosen people. And, and we're going to spring around in, in all sorts of scripture passages as we do. But that metaphor is going to guide us and hopefully help give us a little bit more idea of what it means to be God's people living in the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. I'd like to invite you to do something a moment. Two hands. Take your hands. Put them together. Okay. Going to make one of these little telescopes, homemade telescope, right? It does actually work a little bit, all right? If you're outside, when you do this, it blocks some of the sunlight coming in, and you can actually see a little bit further and hopefully a little bit clearer. It's not quite as good as LASIK surgery on the eyes, but it, it does do a little bit of job, right? There's also something that happens when you zero in like that and you try to focus in on that. I can see Steve and JD right now pretty well. Oh, I see Yvonne and Everett a little bit too. And I see some people trying to duck behind them. All right? But I lose out on the rest of you. All right, do that a moment. Just put them up, look around, pay attention a moment to what you see and who you see. Now recognize, take them down, and pay attention to everybody that you missed when you were doing that. Our Reformed theology, our Reformed tradition and training teaches us to do this all the time. We want the details of the Christian faith. We want to understand how it works. And, and so we dig in, especially to issues around salvation and election. We like that word election in our Reformed tradition. And we have a tendency to do this. In fact, there was once a gathering that stretched over parts of two years, from 1618 in the 1619. The Synod of Dort, Synod of Dortrecht. I'm not saying it right, am I, Jerry? I'm getting there. It, it was this huge gathering of church leaders in the Netherlands, and they spent long hours debating and arguing with each other and trying to find out, figure out together, how do we explain the fact that we are saved by Jesus Christ? And it's essentially this. It is a huge huge kind of training in and blocking out everything else just so they can see one specific area. 
we have a tendency to say that's all there is to say about salvation. And what we end up missing is this broad, broad sweep that's in Scripture that also talks about God's love and God's affection that gave God the impetus to save us. And so this morning, we're going to back out and, and not spend quite as much time not quite as much time on the technical side of salvation. We'll say a few things about it. We're going to say much more about the affection side. And in fact, instead of, instead of overlooking God's affection towards us, we're going to take some time simply to hear Scripture, words that God has given to us to express God's affection for us. We get the salvation side of being chosen by God. Deuteronomy 9, verse 6 has, has one of these clear statements in it. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. We kind of like that heavy-handed language in the Reformed tradition. In fact, there's a whole, whole kind of theology that develops out of this, and, and we've nicknamed it worm theology. Anybody ever heard of that before? Worm theology. We've nicknamed it that because we take passages like this and we say, we have to remember, we have nothing to offer God. We are lower than the worms. We are in the dirt of our own sin, and there's nothing we can do about it. We are stuck in the muck and mire of our own making. We are worms. We are a stiff-necked people. God doesn't save us because of our righteousness. God doesn't save us because we have something to offer God. It's not like he went around and said, ooh, that person has something I can use. I want that person on my side. Oh, that person doesn't have anything. Let's just move them off. That isn't it. In fact, Scripture says all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have ended up in the death of our own brokenness. We are helpless. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is another passage we often go to. And in this passage, we really want to emphasize, there's one little phrase we come back to quite a bit in our Reformed theology, but let me read it. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, for a while I spent some time in a, another denomination when I was in uh, early part of university, end of high school, early part of university. And, and their emphasis, it was interesting to me, was on the little phrase, it is the gift of God. In a reform tradition, we kind of skip that little phrase and we say, this is not from ourselves, not by works. And we want to emphasize that our salvation has nothing to do with us doing it. We can't accomplish it. We can't earn it. We can't, we can't find some way to manufacture it or deserve it. And so we want to drill it in. It's not our doing. And that's true. It's completely right. But again, we tend to miss over that middle part of God's gift and God's grace. What we come down to is something we witnessed this morning. 
that water going on Leah. It's a reminder for all of us that we come to God not with gifts and power and resources to bless God, but we come to God just as helpless as Leah is, completely dependent on the love and care of her parents. She won't survive without it. And it's the same way spiritually. Unless God reaches down to us, unless God acts, we're lost. We're as helpless as infants without God. That's the technical side. We don't save ourselves. God, through Jesus Christ, extends salvation to us. It's God's work, not our own. But in drilling in and focusing in so much on that part, we tend to miss the broad picture. Here are some of the things that we overlook. The very next chapter out of that Deuteronomy 9 section, it's continuing the conversation. And God says to them, to the people of Israel, God says to them, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all nations, as it is today. You know what? If you paid attention earlier in the worship service, our call to confession this morning was out of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. And he also talked about God's affection. This context of calling, this context of choosing, God choosing us, has everything to do with God's affection. My affection is what's leading me to love you, is what God's saying. My affection for you is what's leading me to give you these commands in this way of life. My affection is what's bringing you out of your misery. Here it's tied in to the people of Israel caught up in the slavery in Egypt. Our lives, it's tied into us being caught up in the slavery to our sins. And God's saying to us, I'm the one who rescues you from your sin because my affection is upon you. I love you. I choose you because I love you. Another Old Testament passage. God's speaking through the prophet Zephaniah and he's speaking to them and, and talking to them about the brokenness that they've been in and the, the confines of their sin and how they felt enslaved by their sin, oppressed by their sin. And he says this, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. Wrapping in that salvation language again. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Did you catch that? God rejoices over you with singing. Anyone here ever been serenaded? Yeah? It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you feel a little awkward at first when a person starts singing, but there's something that gets into us to have another person demonstrate affection to us by singing to us. All right, 
Small story, okay? I lost my original wedding ring, okay? I did. I was doing dishes, so it was a good thing. But the ring slipped off my finger and went down the drain, and I couldn't get at it. We were living at Kelvin College at the time in one of the dorms. We called the maintenance guy. He came over almost immediately, took everything apart, but somehow that ring had already flushed down and through the system. It was gone. I'm like, ah! We're like three years into marriage. Not a great thing to do, right? A few months later, we're out shopping, and we have a bunch of students with us from Kelvin, and we're out shopping at the mall, and Henny comes up to me, and she gets down on one knee in the middle of the mall with a new ring. <laughs> and in the moment, I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> right here in front of everybody. What is it? And there was all those awkward kind of butterfly feelings. But at the same time, there was this incredible sense of being loved and being chosen right in front of everybody. That's what this is. God slipping words and messages all the way in among his words to his people. All the way through the Old Testament, you can find passages like this where God rejoices in his people. God delights in them. God loves them. God pours out his favor upon them. And he's saying again and again and again to them, I love you. I choose you. You are the one I am choosing. I desire you. I'm baffled when people say the God of the Old Testament is this God of wrath and vengeance. Oh, people, when we read the whole of the Old Testament, you see these passages coming up again and again and again of God who loves his people. God who refuses to quit loving his people, even when they turn against him, even when they reject his love, a God who pursues his people and says, I still love you, no matter what. In that Ephesians 2, 8, and 10, 8 through 9 passage that we read a minute ago, I sometimes marvel that we don't stick our attention more on this other part in the passage. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Oh, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us. It's not like God had a transaction to pay. And it was just solely a cold business transaction. Okay, you've sinned, there's a debt needs to be paid, I'm paying the debt, you're free. All right? Sometimes we fall into that trap when we look so intently at the means of salvation and how it came about that we get stuck on just this transaction that God does. And we miss his great love. It's right there in the text. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he saves us even when we're dead. 
when we're so far gone, when our sins have killed us and destroyed our life, God steps in and says, I love you. I choose you. I'm going to give you life. This Isaiah 49 passage gives us a a little bit more to to kind of hang this all on. It's a a prophetic passage that's talking about uh, how the coming Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, is God's chosen one. That God's chosen this Messiah to act, in fact, as the people of Israel were supposed to act. To have the relationship with God and with the rest of the world that the people were supposed to have. And so in here, it calls Jesus or the Messiah Israel because Jesus is fulfilling Israel's role as God's servant and the tangible presence of God among the nations. And there's a little foreshadowing in here. It talks about in this passage how the Messiah is one who's, who's kind of rejected and, and ignored. He's not one who's desired by the people. Isaiah 53 picks up on this even more so and, and adds to the explanation of what's in this text. It talks about how he's, the Messiah is the one who has been rejected by the people. He's taken upon himself all our sins, all our infirmities. He's, he's the one who in his wounds is bringing about healing for us. So there's a little bit of that in this choosing, that Jesus is being chosen to do a task that nobody else was fit to do. And along with that, we also get a little foreshadowing, and we sometimes miss this, of Jesus' baptism. There's language in here about affection. The passage ends by saying, Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This language of Jesus being the chosen one of God is really important for us to understand what it means to be God's chosen people. Jesus, who lives fully and faithfully as God's son, as God's people, who does what the people of Israel were supposed to do, what all of us were supposed to do in relationship with God and the rest of the world. He fulfills that, and as he fulfills that, it leads him to take on the worst we have to offer In a few moments, we're going to be tasting the bread and the cup. And it's not just bread and juice. It's us remembering this faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That he died for our sins. That he, God's chosen one, took into himself the brokenness of the world and brought about forgiveness and reconciliation so that we can be restored with God. But in the context of this Isaiah passage, he's saying, yes, that's what you're called to do and what I've called you to do and sent you to do. But I'm doing it because I choose you. I choose you. Listen to this. This comes from Luke chapter 3, and it's at Jesus' baptism, and there's a voice that comes from heaven at Jesus' baptism. You are my son whom whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. You're the one I love. You're the one I'm well pleased in. And notice, this is before Jesus has done any of the work of salvation that he's been sent to do. This is before he's accomplished anything. It's in fact before he's led into the desert to be tempted. And God's word to him is not be faithful. 
God's word to his son is not, you have a hard road ahead of you, make sure you follow my commands. None of that. God the Father's word to his son. Right before he's tempted, and just before he enters into this time of ministry that will lead to his death, says to him, you're the one that I love. The one I've chosen. I delight in you. That's how God the Father loves Jesus. Listen to this passage. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Do you notice the language in there? Joy. I take joy in you. Love each other as I have loved you. It's rooted not in this strict obedience and this transactional faith. It's rooted in a context of I'm choosing you and I love you. You're wrapped in my love. There's more scripture. And I'm actually going to sit down as I read these. And I'm going to leave a few minutes of silence in between each of the passages that I read. And I invite you, as I do, simply to put your hands in front of you. Some of you may be able to, to close your eyes even without falling asleep. To close your eyes and allow the words simply to sink in. Some of you may learn better and receive it better by being able to read the words, so feel free to read them on the screen. But I'm going to read these passages and leave some silence in between them. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves 
so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. First John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, may the truth of your words sink deep within us that you have set your affection upon us and chosen us to be your people, to be your friends, to be your family. We cannot find enough words to express our gratitude for this love that you have lavished upon us in Jesus Christ through his life and death and resurrection. We are in awe that you continue to intercede for us, Jesus. And we are in awe that the Spirit works in us to intercede too. Help us to see the expansiveness of your love for us. The height and depth and breadth and length of your love in Jesus Christ. May we taste it. May we hear it. And may we believe it. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.